Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. Well, guys, we have some exciting news for you from Vortex about their brand new eyewear, their Banshee and Jackal sunglasses. Me and Andrew have had these for a few weeks now, right before the release, and we've been extremely impressed. They're awesome glasses, guys. And listen, if you're needing some new sunglasses, not only do they have the VIP warranty, but they're tough as crap, guys. Uh, Scratch-resistant eyewear, uh, it's extremely important. And also, they have safety features as well. So when you're out shooting at the range, again, these are rated glasses, so you are going to be more than protected when you're at the range. But they also look fantastic when you're out around town. So right now, Vortex has some special pricing on their website, which is vortexoptics.com for the new eyewear. But also, if you use the code SOUTHERN20, you get to save even more on this special pricing for right now at vortexoptics.com. Again, check out the new eyewear from vortexoptics.com and use the promo code SOUTHERN20 to save on their brand new eyewear. If you live in the Gulf Coast region, you need to find yourself at the Eco Wild Expo May 10th through the 12th in Mobile. It is the premier outdoor expo for the Gulf Coast region, and we're going to be there. We're going to have a booth. We're super excited about it. Can't wait to meet you guys that live down there. We absolutely love the Gulf Coast region, so to be a part of this show, we're super excited about. We're going to have past podcast guests there at our booth for you to talk to, guys who are relevant for your area, who you can talk to, you can pick their brain, you can joke with them, laugh with them, tell them your story, whatever you want to do. It's going to be a awesome time. We're already working on some past podcast guests, but hey, if you live in this area and you have a suggestion for someone you want to see at that show, write in and we'll see if we can get them. There's going to be all kinds of exhibitors at the show that are focused on hunting, fishing, conservation, and recreation. There's going to be activities for the whole family there. They got axe throwing, archery. They're going to have our podcast booth. And then for the kids, they got touch tanks, a honeybee exhibition, a raptor show, kids fishing tank, BB gun range, and a butterfly house. So you're going to love it. Your kids are going to love it. It's going to be an awesome time. So head on over to ecowildexpo.com to get more information on the show and to go ahead and grab your tickets. And hey, mark it on your calendar, May 10th through the 12th. Be there. We want to see you and we're excited to talk to you. So we'll see you at the EcoWild Expo this May 10th through the 12th at the Mobile Convention Center in Mobile, Alabama. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th 
Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. We're coming at you from the woods. That's why we're still in our camo. Had an interesting hunt today that you're going to hear all about on the next outro episode. But today, we're talking about a little bit of backtracking sign, Mr. Jacob Lyshen. Jacob, how are you doing, man? I'm great. Happy to be here. Stoked to talk about it with you guys. Um, yeah, so sounds like you guys had a had an exciting evening in the woods. Yeah, it was uh, it was something. Uh, There's some buck seen, had some close encounters, Uh target buck may or may not have gotten an arrow flung at him not by me by somebody else but we'll see we'll, we'll talk about it in the outro uh jacob how are you doing oh doing well doing well it's been it's been a long day listen we go from uh well again we'll talk about it in the outro breakdown <laughs> episode but it's a fiasco you definitely gonna want to tune in thursday guys uh but no doing extremely well and jacob super excited to get you on the podcast man this is something i think we've kind of at least i've talked about getting you on for a little while now um and finally we're able to make this happen you know about five and a half years into the podcast but uh jacob real quick i, I want you to kind of give me a, a rundown of your deer hunting background where you're originally from but now where you reside a, as a resident in the southeast great um so i was born and raised in uh, the great and wild state of central florida uh, i say central florida because florida is a good number of different states all over itself um so <laughs> <laughs> uh, people from South Florida and North Florida, we're all, we're all kind of our own people. So I spent, um, most of my younger years there, uh, just chasing everything that I could in the woods. Um, but spent a lot of my early deer hunting days, uh, on a lease in Georgia. So we leased land in two different, one County in central Georgia, and then one County in Southeast Georgia, um, for most of my, most of my youth, um, uh, you know, afterwards ended up moving to um virginia for college uh spent some time in the mountains there trying to trying my best to chase those whitetails unsuccessfully as a young kid in school um but uh you know found home after uh, bouncing around a little bit uh post-college in the state of north carolina so i've been there now uh going on seven years um and have been successfully whitetail hunting that for quite some time, uh, most the most of the duration that I've been there, uh, and almost exclusively on public land. I've only taken one private land buck uh, since I've been there. So, um, yeah, and I've had had a great time. So I've, it's helped me really like dial in on hunting the southeast, and it's also shown me how like applicable the things that I started to learn in Georgia were in North Carolina. Absolutely. And another thing, Jacob, that we're going to mention, actually, we're going to talk about this in the episode is um, at least the last four years, you've been hunting a bunch of different states. I think you mentioned before we started recording, you know, you try to do about six states a year that you like to hunt, uh, hunting a bunch of public land kind of across the country. Um, or, of course, you know, trying to pick up some properties if you get access to some. But um, one thing you mentioned us previously, and especially one, one of my calls with you, uh, I guess a week and a half ago, almost two weeks ago, 
is what you do with specifically North Carolina, how it translates to all these other states, but it works so well in, in specifically North Carolina. But uh, you've been bouncing around. You were kind of giving us a little rundown of your season so far. And, again, how you try to hone in on specific signs, specifically rubs, and how that really plays a factor for you. But b- before we kind of dive into that, I want to I want to hash out something real early with you because um, I know you're listening to the podcast as well. And you brought up something to me that I really want to discuss as well in this episode, uh, which is the idea of a hunting feed sign for mature bucks. Give me your take on this and why maybe it's not always the best option, something that maybe you kind of stick, you know, stay away from with your actual hunting style. I stay away from hunting feed sign for the simple fact that it's inconsistent. Uh, It's specifically on the caliber of deer that I'm interested in killing. Um, I'm not, I am happy with, so I'm going to take a step back. Um, when I travel to hunt, it's because I'm working on the road a lot. So I end up hunting. So it's not like I'm this, like on this excapade of hunting States. So for everybody listening, it's not like, oh man, this guy has so much time that he can take six States and go hunt them all effectively. It's like, well, not necessarily. Um, I have a photo and video production business. It requires us to travel. Everybody wants their film and photo work done in the fall for hunting. So that's when I'm on the road. So if I don't, if I don't hunt in the state that I'm in, um, I don't get to hunt. So, um, it's great in the sense that you get a wide array of experiences. Um, but even more so it's awesome to tie those things back to what I'm trying and getting you know, time to put into the state that I spend the most time hunting in, which is North Carolina. Um, The reason that I don't hunt feed sign, whether I travel or whether I'm home in North Carolina, is the same reason I don't hunt a corn pile for a mature buck. It's inconsistent. They don't show up there on a regular enough basis for me to justify harvesting them there, specifically in daylight hours. I'm not saying that they won't do it at all. Um, You might be able to get them there during the rut or you know during a time where they're trying to pick off does or hit hit a scrape but for the most part it's not a consistent when you're when you're looking at hunting where the time you spend in the field is finite you've got a week to get something done which is the way that i approach every property in state and out of state like i get on a property and i'm like going to give it five to seven days as hard as i can go and expect that I'm going to harvest my buck or get an opportunity at him in that time. I cannot sit all season uh, or even for two weeks on a primary feeding area and bounce around this feeding area, hoping that he comes in. I have to like make my luck, you know, like I kind of look at one of the things I was going to bring up with you guys. I've been thinking about this a lot is like, I, I look at hunting on this spectrum of um of like luck and strategy and the spectrum is like if you were to take it from you know on a linear line and on the right side is luck and on the left side is strategy uh and then in the middle you have like this toggle that rotates back and forth the more that i can like eliminate the luck and make it more strategy the better it is for me And I think that's a big issue for people is that a lot of times they're banking too much on the luck. Like if you're going 50, 50 or 70, 30, you're giving way too much credit to the luck. There's always some that's there. Like you can't, you're, you're, you're out hunting against a wild animal. You're, you're, you're out there chasing something that has its own 
it can do its own thing, <laughs> you know? So, so I think that there's always some of that that you have to expect. You can't account for everything, but you want to whittle down as much as possible. So it's all about putting, putting yourself in high priority, high odds opportunity situations. And I just don't find that consistency from a percentage basis to relate effectively enough to feed trees to justify me being there and hunting them. So with that, a lot of listeners, um, you, we kind of divided the audience right now because we, we, and, and this is one reason why I want to talk about, um, because we've had a lot of, you know, very successful feed tree hunters that do kill some really good deer every single year, um, or at least consistently on, on feed trees. But we, you know, a great example, Rick Cope. We've had a ton of listener success stories come yep. from Rick Cope's episode from South Carolina. Episode 510. 510. But also on the flip side, we've also had a lot of feedback from other listeners saying that, like, features are great, but, like, exactly what you're saying. Like, it's hard to have a consistency on a very specific deer trying to hunt that primary food source. And one thing that you've mentioned is, again, how, you know, trying to take as much of the luck out of it and lean a little bit more towards strategy you you made a phrase that I really want to hone down on is like make your own luck. What do you mean by make your own luck when it comes to whitetail hunting? I think what I mean is like, hmm, that's a, that's a good question. So I think what I mean is that you only have so much time, right? So like there, for me, I don't have the time to waste on just sitting and waiting. Like I, I, I use the term a lot in, in other speaking engagements where I'm talking about like, you're, it's like, you're hanging to hunt. You're not hunting to hope. Like that's the, that's the real deal here is that like, if you, um, and this was a hard habit for me to break a couple years ago. So I'm, I don't want to act like, like this isn't something that just comes natural. It's, it's ingrained in all of us that you walk out and you, you know, at least in the Southeast, you're, you're accustomed to walking out and, hanging in a, you know, sitting in a double ladder stand and, or in a box and you're just kind of hoping something good comes out, <laughs> you know? And I think that the tradition of hunting over food sources is, is in it of itself, kind of hoping that the deer determine your luck. You're not actually like putting those pieces together most of the time. Now I'm saying somebody might not have a camera over a field and be paying attention to it and you know, do whatever they're going to do there. And that's, that's an argument for another time. But the, but for the most part, I want to figure a buck out. I want to look at what he does in his movement and um, not just him, but the general area that bucks are, are preferring on a specific piece of ground and then put myself in the highest odds chance to just be in or around them. So making my own luck is, is me solving the problem that is how can I get myself within, you know, 25 yards of a whitetail um, for a perspective, the last six whitetails I've shot have all been under 16 yards with a bow. Um, correction. I shot one with a rifle last year. First one for a long time. Um, so I know the old ginger gunslinger over here will be stoked yeah, about that. So, yeah. <laughs> we took the old odd six out for the first time in 10 years and it barked. Um, <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. Listen, smell yeah. that gunpowder, baby. <laughs> but but um, but all those bucks were were eight yards, 10 yards, seven yards, 12 yards, 16 yards, 14 yards. Like they're all close. And the only reason that you can hunt them like that and why they're 
there are other guys in in the hunting space that I think do so really well is because they're hunting, they're making their luck, they're making their opportunity, they're, they're putting more cards in their hand and less in the in the buck's hand. Like, that's kind of the, I know that's a roundabout way of saying of answering the question, but I feel like it's like, you can answer that a lot of different ways. Yeah, well, well, that's perfect segue because I want to kind of go into the next next aspect to this conversation, which is you're talking about all these shot opportunities, you know, taking the rifle, you know, out, out of the equation. All these bucks that you've killed in the last couple of years um, have all been, you know, say sub twenty yards. If you're taking feed trees or just like a pro, and even not even feed trees, but just primary food sources out of the equation, your corn piles, your food plots, you know, big ag, all that kind of stuff, you know, oaks, all that kind of stuff out of the equation what is giving you the opportunity to be able to get that close to a whitetail to, to a mature buck and get a shot opportunity without actually having to rely on a food source? I think, I think what allows you to get closer to whitetails. Um, so it seems to me in my experience, people who hunt exclusively food sources are almost always prepared for longer shots. I don't know why, whether it's just them hunting over a corn pile or hunting in a field. They're always like, I got to be ready to shoot one at 40. Like <laughs> I, I have no interest in shooting a whitetail at 40. I don't like shooting them at 30. I don't like shooting them at 25. I want to shoot them at 12. Like I want, I want to draw back and have my pin fill up, like just be right where it needs to be. I have no, I don't want to have to think about it, you know? So for me, hunting close is hunting based on, um, like hunting, hunting, finding deer and being able to hunt them close is based on security. Um, so I don't, I'm looking for where a buck feels the safest going from a to B, not necessarily like just where he goes or where he's gone, but the, the most likely place he'll go based on him feeling safe. And then how close can I get to that? And what's my approach, um, to get there. Um, now I'll, I'll, you know, I'll throw a wrench in everybody's systems in the sense that I really don't care about my exit strategy. Um, but my approach matters a lot to me. Um, and then I bounce around pretty aggressively and I'm trying to get as uncomfortably close as possible. Um, you know, so the, the two things I actually wrote down on my, on my note sheet here, I came prepared. Um, so the two words that I preach to everybody, if there's an opportunity for you to change your mindset, as far as how whitetail hunting goes and what's helped me the most is to always lean on the, on the side of making sure you're uncomfortable and you're doing things that are unconventional, the two use. Um, and what I mean by that is like, when you're uncomfortable, think about like, you don't want to have to cross a Creek. You don't have to walk through a swamp. You don't want to have to access through like a thousand acre cornfield where you're walking a row of corn for, you know, 500 yards whatever the process is almost every single time when I've had either an opportunity at or been able to harvest a mature buck, it's because one, I've been in an uncomfortable spot and two, it's been an extremely unconventional spot. Um, it's very against the norm of what I think not only the norm, like the routine hunters are doing, but also it's very against the norm of what I would consider a typical place that you would even hang or find a whitetail. Okay. Yeah. There, there's a lot here we got to dive into. Let me, let me ask you this. How do you go about 
because it, it, one thing that you like to do is hunt specific deer, you know, locate side based off a specific buck and, and try to, like we mentioned earlier, backtrack that deer and really trying to learn his habits uh, without necessarily, again, relying on the food source. What are some of those things that you're keying in on that helps you try to figure out a specific deer and how he's using an area and then when and how you need to make your moves in order to get that close opportunity? So I think I think the best way to answer that is is almost by if you're okay with this is by breaking down the process of what a week long hunt looks like as best as as abbreviated as I can. So so um, usually, and I say a week long. Typically, when I'm when I'm hunting a specific buck, um, you know whether it's in uh, North Carolina, um, you know Illinois, North Dakota, Virginia, wherever. I usually am on like a, a anywhere between a five and a 10 day routine. So with my harvest typically falling sometime around day seven. Um, so I'll kind of explain what those days are like. So um, we'll start from like you choose your property. So I would choose a property based on it being one, something that I feel like allows me to be unconventional in my approach or offers a wide diversity of landscapes and habitat types. Um, not specifically something that I think a lot of people are going to go to. So I'm not huge on big pieces of public. I'd rather pick small pieces of public, even in my own hometown. So if I'm going to go to a new piece, let's say I'm in central North Carolina and I'm going to go to a new piece of public land, I'm going to go to a piece that is something that I can take bite-sized pieces out of. Meaning like, I'm not going to pick the first thousand or 2000 acre piece of property or however big piece I'm going to pick. 100 acres out of that piece of property. And then I'm going to take the first day and I'm going to try to cover as many inches of that property that I think are applicable to a big buck as possible. Because with every property, you have an 80-20 rule, right? So if you pick 100 acres, 20 acres of it are probably going to be actually used by the deer collectively. Not, not always. You may have some that there's some change, but it's a good rule to live by. Um, so I'm going to walk as much as I can with emphasis on key points within that property. So once I've, once I've covered that ground, I'll identify on day one of my hunt and day two, like, what am I seeing? Um, so first of all, like, let's, let's think about it as a Monday. So show up on a Monday, I'm walking this property, I'm finding sign, I'm paying attention to what is the average size sign look like? And then what is the like big sign look like? You know, some states, the Midwest, you may find the average size rub is on, you know, the size of something as big as your forearm. In North Carolina, the average size rub might be on something as big as my thumb. And then all of a sudden I find one that's on something as big as my, my wrist. And I need to take note of that. Um, and uh, to kind of get in front of that, you know, I feel like an argument for that as a sidebar. Um, I don't believe that... Um, I don't believe that every buck, I, I believe every buck can make a big rub, but I think that more often than not, especially going back to our odds and our odds and strategy and percentages discussion, big bucks have a tendency to make big rubs. Um, little bucks may contribute to big rubs. I've seen like tiny bucks contribute to an existing big rub and even make a big rub but it's less frequent. It's the same principle with tracks. It's not that a little buck can't have a big foot. It's that a lot of big bucks have big feet. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so anyways, so day one, 
I've I've picked a property. I've walked as much of it as I can. I've either identified I want to hunt this piece, um, usually in the morning, and then I'll put more effort in in the afternoon, or I'll go switch and pick a new piece, and I'll keep I'll keep con- I'll continue walking properties until I find one that I'm going to mark as like this is my A piece of ground, or this is the spot that I'm going to hunt the most as you know hopefully. Once I've identified that property, I'm immediately going to go do a combination of road scouting and quick walks to pick B properties, meaning that if I show up and I start hunting and things don't work out well, if that property gets overrun by other public land hunters, I need a place to go and I need it and I need it to be a spot that emulates the first spot. So I want it to look like and feel like and be like the first spot so that I have some confidence in the fact that a big buck can live there. Um, that's, that's the big underlying factor. It's not, it's not, does a property have everything that a, that a big buck needs, but does a property have the security that a big buck can live in, um, specifically survive in, especially in the Southeast or in high pressure areas. If you guys ever travel to Wisconsin, Minnesota, Pennsylvania, New York, any of these big high pressure hunting States, Ohio, the same thing applies just like it does in the Southeast. So now we're through Monday and Tuesday. So Wednesday typically is my first hunt day. Um, Sometimes it's Tuesday afternoon, but most of the time it's that third day of the week. When I'm going in for my hunt, I'm hunting the spot that I scouted as my main spot first. So Wednesday would be my A spot. And then I'm going to start stage hunting it. So in the morning, I'm going to try to go to one of the more difficult spots to get to, to hunt that property. Um, when I, you know, which is I'm not stage hunting. I feel like, like you would in the conventional manner of starting closest to the parking lot and working in, I'm coming from the reverse side. I'm going as far in as I can. And then I'm work, and then I'm going to hunt that so that I, I put as much boot traffic on that property as I need to between my scouting day. And then now this first hunt, and then what will happen is either on that first hunt, because I'm going to the very best spot that I scouted, the most difficult place to get to, I'll either, one, usually have a really great sit. I'll see a bunch of deer. You know, I'll see a buck. I'll have, uh, you know. But two, on my way out, I can now re-scout everything that I scouted on the way, like on my hike in. So I can see everything that's now been updated on that property. I can see new scrapes that are hit. I can see new rubs that are made. I can see everything. And then I stage hunt my way back out, or I determine if I need to start the reverse. And then the next day I can come in and start hunting from the front end. Just depends on where all that sign is. And you never know until you actually get in there and you see it. And it's a day-to-day evolving process. So Wednesday afternoon, uh, I'm focusing on the best sign that I found either on that hunt. So if I saw a buck on Wednesday morning um, and I made a move on him, you know, or I see him make a move and I want to make an adjustment, I'm going to make that Wednesday afternoon if I can. Uh, Meaning like some bucks are just not huntable at certain times of the day. Like some spots are not morning or evening spots. Some bucks you will never kill in the morning and some you will never kill in the evening. It's just the true fact. It's just the hard fact of their life. You know, so I'm going to make a determination there and I'm either going to hunt the best sign that I found on my scout out, or I'm going to hunt what I saw from the morning set. Um, as the week progresses, that strategy 
amplifies every single sit to the extent to where what my goal is, is to continue to take that property that I have been hunting and to progressively shrink it as tight as I can to the point to where that, that buck is almost in a proverbial fishbowl where it's like, I know without a shadow of a doubt that he's in this area. And even if I'm putting pressure on it, it has enough of what he wants specifically security that the likelihood of me bumping him out is minimal because everywhere else is more dangerous than here. And I might bump him. He may smell my foot, my boot, my boot tracks there, but he's here for a reason. And he's here because he can survive here. So if he can survive here, it's going to take a lot of effort for me to kick him out of this area because this is like, especially for an older buck, like a buck four years or older, they have chosen a spot based on like, I can live here, not because of like, it's close to food or it's close to water or, you know, maybe that applies in certain times of the year, but most of the time security is very top of their list. So, um, as I work through the week, that's the strategy that I'm going to take. And as the week closes out, my sits are going to continue to get more bold where I'm going to be pushing, uh, the boundaries on where I need to go. And I'm reading sign every single day. So I hang and hunt every single time I go in. I very rarely leave a stand in a tree, almost never. Um, I think I've done it once in three or four years. That never happens because I never know when I'm going to change what I do. I change something every single time I go in. Like this morning's hunt, for example, I walked in the dark. I stood at the head of a drainage for 45 minutes watching the sunrise, determining where I wanted to hang. Like the panic inside me <laughs> of like, I need to be in a tree. It's getting light out mm -hmm. was like hard to fight off. But I also knew I needed to make the right decision. And I had to go through all those equations in my head to be like, well, if he does this, he'll do this. If he does this, he'll do this. If he does this, he'll do this. If I go here, he'll go there. And it's this whole process of like pre-forecasting the chess match that is you and this whitetail. Which, by the way, you killed a buck on that hunt, right? <laughs> Today? Yeah. Uh, I shot a buck. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. I missed, I missed part of that earlier. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Jacob uh, was in the bathroom. Yeah. You were, yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Jacob was in the bathroom. Yeah, that, not a happy ending there. Gotcha. Not a happy ending. Um, not a happy ending. So, uh, uh, um, yeah, I shot a good buck. We won't talk about that right now. Well, I'm, we'll save that for another podcast. I'm I'm curious uh, about the your process when it comes to both the security cover and the buck sign. So going all the way back to the beginning, the 80-20 rule, uh, narrowing down a 1,000 acres into 100 acres, um, you've kind of touched on it a couple times, but I want to go a little bit deeper. You're focusing on security cover that can hold a mature buck. And I'm really curious, especially with someone who travels as, as much as you do, because you hunt North Carolina, you were just mentioning Illinois, Wisconsin, just wherever work takes you, you know, that's where you're going to hunt. Um, how do you determine on the fly what is good security cover in your area? And the reason I ask that is because that's a, that's a problem that I run into quite often when I travel or even when I hunt different places here around Alabama where good cover on one property is maybe not necessarily good cover on another property or good sign on one property is not necessarily good sign on another property. Like the spot where my stepfather missed that buck this afternoon, the sign in that spot wouldn't really get me fired up on another property that I hunt 30 minutes from here. But on this property, it is like the best sign ever, you know, and it's, and it's kind of underwhelming looking sign. 
So how do you make that decision on the fly and, and determine what is good and what is not? That's a great question. Um, so those decisions are made on Monday, going back. <laughs> so so going back to like that week-long strategy, that that decision is not made before my boots are on the ground. So so I think that one of the issues everyone has is they try to predetermine. Once again, you can't predetermine anything. Like you can't pre-select where a buck's going to be. Like you can't, like you can know a general area, like he likes this. You can whittle that down, right? But you don't know definitively that he's going to walk this trail at this time. You're just taking kind of, you're, you're, you're adjusting that luck strategy spectrum, but there's always some luck involved. When it comes to sign, I'm always basing what I determine to be good sign for that area off of the in the moment reading of the landscape, right? So like, I might go to a property and see like one buck track and two doe tracks. And that's all I'm basing that property off of. If it gets better, then that's great. But if it's not, then it's not. So I think the the reality of that is like, if you can have some preconceived notions, like if you're going to go to the Midwest, there's a high volume of deer, you're probably going to see a lot of deer. If you're going to hunt central North Carolina, we have a lot of deer per square mile. It could be anywhere from 25 to 60 plus, depending on where you are, even on the public. Now, some of the public is not that way, but there's a lot of land and there's a lot of deer. So, but you shouldn't be making that determination until you get on the landscape that you're on and you shouldn't be judging it against something else. So for example, I don't hold North Carolina accountable to what I see in Illinois or Minnesota. Um, you know, I also don't hold North Carolina accountable to what I see in Alabama, you know, or Alabama accountable to what I see in North Carolina. So I take every single property for what it's worth on its own. Um, now the question there is, is like, okay, well, how do you know whether a property is worth hunting if you're not justifying like what is and isn't good sign? Because if good sign is only applicable to the property that you're hunting, then how do you ever know whether a good buck is there or not? Um, I'm looking for caliber and size of sign. So for me, if I'm finding rubs that are, let's say the size of your wrist or bigger, um, it's not necessarily that I can guarantee that there's going to be a giant there, but it's, that it's worth a second look. And that's the way that I approach it. Now, then you start to apply density, right? So it's, it's a matter of what frequency am I seeing that sign on a specific piece of property? So I've already attributed this property to being good in it of itself, um, not necessarily in comparison to another piece of land, but then I'm like, okay, now that I'm here, I feel like there are deer here. Um, it has this, the security cover that I think I'm interested in hunting. I can start to look for the size and caliber of sign, large scrapes, deep dugout scrapes, um, historic sign that shows that bucks have a tendency to be here time after time after time again. Um, I've jumped deer, or I've not jumped deer. Uh, and then it lays out in a way that's like more advantageous for him than for me. Like it has to be like, oh, this is like, this makes sense for him to be here because he can survive here. Um, so, and then Andrew, to touch on your question about what constitutes good security cover, I think that that varies in every single state based on what that buck likes to live in. So going back to the fact that like you can't take preconceived notions into your spot. So 
whether I've been in like I've hunted open field country in like wide open high desert plains in Nebraska. And I've hunted what I prefer to hunt is big timberland bottoms in North Carolina. And those bucks do this, do similar things, but they prefer different habitat types. And if you go to North Carolina, there are areas that are like big and grassy landscapes. And there are some bucks that prefer to bed on the edges of those big grassy landscapes. Now they're in hard to hunt spots, but that's where they prefer to be, you know? So it's all personality driven. Um, I think bucks specifically have very unique personalities in it of themselves, each individual buck. And because of that, like they all have different preferences. So the, the short answer to that is just like every individual property you have to look at through the lens of this piece of land and not compare it to something else. Jack, before we got started, uh, you brought up something that I really enjoy talking about, and so I'm glad that you brought it up and that you kind of think this way because it, it's a it's a fun conversation to have, and that is the conversation about uh, that the deer are like all in all like pretty simple creatures, and uh, and they they don't logically think like humans, uh, and and accepting that can maybe help you a lot in your in your strategies. Uh, I think you said something along those lines earlier. Can you expand on that? I did. I think, I think people, uh, and I was guilty of this too. Um, and, and like, I think people have a tendency to, to think like a buck, like has this, like, I mean, I think they do have a sixth sense and a means like they can, I don't know. I have a lot of weird conspiracy theories about bucks that I've chased it, uh, or, or no guys who've chased a bunch of big bucks and, uh, they kind of share those same conspiracy theories, um, which I'll, I'll, I'll try not to bog you down with that. um but i think that oh man um try not to lose my train of thought here so deer simple because they they really just care about three things um that's what we talked about earlier um for the listeners is they care about food water and making more deer uh as andrew says um so (laughs) um and the, I think that those things are all in the bounds of the fact that they have to already be alive, right? So, like, when I look at the hierarchy of preferences of a deer, well, to have food, water, and making more deer, they have to first be alive. <laughs> so, so like, let, you can create, like, a hierarchy of what your focus should be on based on what is most important to those deer, or what your habitat and landscape looks like um, because they're simple, like because they're, they're simple, they're easy to put into those four buckets um, and people overthink and they give the deer too much credit. I've been guilty of it in the past. And what it does is it forces you to make more rash decisions versus like an A plus B equals C. And that's usually what it takes like, a lot of the time especially outside the rut during the rut all things are off so like if it's if it's rut like there's no strategy to it so I, maybe it's worth prefacing that a lot of the stuff that i'm talking about is more useful up until if you're in a if you're in a conventional like rut timeline state up until like october 30th from october 30th until mid-november uh, and then again, in that second rut window, usually in December, like 
kind of all bets are off. Um, now you can get lucky and find a buck that's more of a passive buck that chooses to sit more during the rut and wants to stay a little bit further away from everything. Maybe he doesn't want to fight, maybe he's shy, whatever it is. Um, those deer do exist, but for the most part, you're banking a lot of this strategy talk off of like, depending on when state, when your state opens September through the end of October. Uh, and then again in late season in December. Um, so I'd trying to make sure that I answer your question without going too many rambles here. Um, but you know, I don't, I'm, I'm terrible at, at answering some of those in the sense of like, to explain why I think they're simple is to explain like why they have to like what their priorities are. Like they live in the wild, right? So they're not concerned about the things that we do and they're not thinking about the things that we do. They, they know that they have predators. Those are you, me, coyotes, everything else. Uh, and then they just have to have food, water, and they have to make more deer and have security. So um, they're not like wizards out there, even though they might feel like them sometimes. How does that factor into your tactics where you're hunting your way through a property and you're going and you're identifying the place you want to hunt, you're identifying what cover you think that those deer are wanting to use, and then you're identifying the sign that relates to that cover. Uh, so how do you tie all that together and and basically end up coming up with stand locations based off of that? You mentioned a couple times earlier that that you're like wanting to go to like the hardest to access spots. Um, yep. I, I'm curious about how all that kind of ties off together. Like it does, does the difficulty of access take precedent over the sign or do you need to see like a certain amount of sign to hunt a spot? That's a great question. So I think that the, the way I want to make sure that we answer that is to clarify what I mean by difficulty of access. It doesn't mean far away from the parking lot. It might mean right nearby. It just means like going back to that whole uncomfortable aspect. Mature bucks have a tendency to want to live in like pretty gnarly spots a lot of the times, or once again, spots that give them the advantage. It just seems to coincide, I think, a lot of the time that bucks that want to, um, that they find safety and security, especially older bucks in these places that are like very uncomfortable for you as a person to be in, uh, whether that's pine thicket, whether that's new cutover, whether that's you know, the middle of a swamp or a cattail marsh or whatever it is, um, or the top of a bluff, like all those places are difficult for you to get to, um, not just physically, but also to hunt. So that's, you know, they, they, they relate to those because there's less people there. Right. Um, as far as identifying what makes a spot good, um, I'm just looking at density of sign. So I want to be able to identify like, okay, uh, usually going and coming sign so deer travel not just like one way um so let's say i walk into a piece of property um you could see like a myriad of rubs scattered all over the place and identify okay deer live here but then it's your job to say that okay now i have to backtrack that and take that you know if you went from a thousand to 100 acres and that was your 80 20 now you're going to apply that same 80 20 to that 100 acres and you're going to go, now I have to take this sign and go, okay, it's kind of scattered all over here. I need to start looking for rubs on both sides of the trees or on rubs uh, or on sign that's leading me to and from where I think those deer are coming and going from. 
Um, that'll give me the basis on identifying, okay, this is the bedding area that I think that he's in um, or that I think I need to be around. And then it's less even of if I see that deer um, and more of paying attention to what's going on on the landscape as I work my way out of the woods every single day. Um, it's like all the little things around that. Like, I think a lot of people put a lot of weight in seeing one and it's great. If you can, if you're lucky enough, I certainly am not to see one. And then like, every time you go in see one, and then you're just inching closer and inching closer. Like that doesn't, that's not how it plays out for me. So for me, I go in and I sit and I usually don't see one that I want, but I'll see sign that he made last night, or I'll see sign that another good buck is made or any buck doesn't have to be the same, you know, might not be one I'm hunting um, specifically, but if it's one that I'm interested in based on the caliber of the sign he's leaving, I'll go backtrack it and I'll be like, oh, it looks like he went this way. And you're correlating like his tracks to his sign. You're tying the two together. You're not just like taking one individual thing in and of, it, in and of itself. You're like putting those puzzle pieces together to create a unified answer to that problem. Houndstooth Game Calls is your home for turkey calls this spring. Go check them out. They got all the classic turkey calls. You know, they got the pot calls and the box calls and the mouth calls, but they also got a couple really interesting calls. One of them is called the the success call, and you just need to go look it up. It's very, it's like a box call that you can work with one hand. It's really, really cool. Sounds incredible. They also got the Spurmaster, which is another very unique call that you can get some really unique, clean tones out of. They're going to help you out this turkey season. Use the promo code SOP24 to get 15% off of your order at Houndstooth Game Calls. That's SOP24. Use it at checkout. It helps the podcast. True Lock Chokes has been made in Georgia since 1981 and offering a wide range of chokes, over 2,000 different chokes for all kinds of shooting activities. You might be wondering why you'd want to purchase a True Lock Choke and it's to improve your shotgun performance. Absolutely guaranteed. And as a great example, we have Andrew Maxwell here. And, uh, Andrew, you've had some pretty good luck, again, kind of switching out chokes and trying out the Precision Hunter choke from True Lock. So, Andrew, what's been your experience so far? Yeah, I've, always, I've used the same choke for several years now. I never really thought much of it, and I got the True Lock choke in. I patterned my gun with the first choke at uh, 30 and 50, and then I switched to the True Lock and changed from 30 to 50. And the 50-yard pattern on my gun with the True Lock choke is unbelievable like everybody's jaws were dropping like when we were out there with mike and sam we were all super impressed i mean it's throwing a better pattern at 50 now than it was throwing at 40 before my old choke and andrew you're shooting the precision hunter choke from true lock it's a great option same chokes i have in my shotgun so guys if you want to give true lock a shot this spring you could head over to truelockchokes.com that's t-r-u L-O-C-K chokes.com. You can also use the promo code Southern at checkout at truelockchokes.com and save 10% on your order. Again, give TrueLock a shot this spring, especially if you're not happy with the performance of your shotgun and shoot with a more deadly pattern with TrueLock. Now, how long did it take you to get good at doing this quickly? Because uh, that's something that I've kind of adopted more in recent years where I kind of scout my way into stuff and I've started scouting more than I hunt and man let me tell you there's a lot of trips and a lot of weekends where I just walk and I never find what I'm looking for and you know like sometimes it feels like a wasted trip you know because you just kind of you never really got to hunt that's how Georgia was for me this year but like in the end, it's not because you're you're learning and whatnot. So I'm just curious, like how long did it take you to get good at that? Where you're saying by Wednesday you're like jumping in ready to kill something. But how many times were you like 
walking until Friday and you you know you didn't think that you were finding a good enough sign. I'm excited about this question because <laughs> uh <laughs> because like this is like one of my one of my biggest pet peeves and it's a pet peeve because it took me a while to learn it too in the sense of like just the feeling like any time you spend walking a piece of ground is not bad time like you when you leave the truck whether you have a stand on your back or your bow in your hand or your saddle on or whatever you're doing you are effectively hunting like every bit of footwork on that ground plays to the end goal that you have and I think a lot of times the reason why that Wednesday start time is so significant for me, or like it doesn't have to be a Wednesday, let's be clear. That's just for perspective, you know, for everybody that's listening. It could be, I could be getting off work early on a Thursday, hunting, you know, scouting on Friday and hunting Saturday and Sunday. It's the same principle applies. Um, what, what I think a lot of guys do is they don't continue to walk when they find something that they like. And that's important is it's, it's, you have to be able to like make a mental note of that or mark it on, on X and then come back to it and go, okay, this is the best thing I found. Not just the best thing that I found while I was walking. And then I turned around and left and then said, I'm going to come hunt this. You have to, you have to take that. And this maybe goes into answering the question you asked a little bit earlier, Andrew, in the sense of like, you're you're putting that sign up against everything else you're seeing on that property on those day on that day or two that you walk it and you're assuming that one good hard walkthrough is not going to ruin that property you're going okay the odds are this buck is not going to go blow out of the county because i walk it one time but if me walking it one time helps me identify the only two or three stand sites on a singular piece of property, I'm collectively going to put a lot less overall pressure and a lot more targeted pressure on those deer and not just befuddle the property all week long. You know, it's not going to be all over the place. So, so I come coming full circle, the walking that you're doing enables you to make those strategic decisions. Like it enables you to make those that like to feel confident in that midweek hunt start like that, you know, where you're going in, you're like, I'm going in to hunt here and I feel good about it. Well, the reason is, is because you've already identified that that's the best spot on the, or the best region of the property. So every hunt from there on out is like, you're in the game, you know, but why would you not, why would you go in for a sit? If you were going like, why would you sit if you weren't in the game? Like, so, so that's, you know, my buddy and I that hunt in North Carolina a lot, um, two years ago, we started like this, this rule that if, even if we had to stand on our back, if we were going into hunt, if we got somewhere and didn't feel good about the spot, whether it was morning, evening, midday, whatever, we would continue to walk. We would just walk with a stand on their back. And I can't tell you how many times I have like gone in in the morning and hung a set and sat there at 7 a.m. and been like, why am I sitting here? And I broke the set down and I put it on my back and I started walking and I found a new spot. And I either was like, oh, this is where I should have been this morning. And I backed out and I hunted it the next morning or, you know, whatever. Every hour you spend sitting in a tree that's unconfident is an hour you could be learning the property better. 
Yeah, that's a really good point, and, and maybe we can talk about that a little bit more uh, later on in the episode. Uh, but another thing that I was kind of curious about is, do you hunt, like in North Carolina specifically, do you hunt properties like year after year, or are you kind of always bouncing around? Um, I So the rule that I have started to try to live by um, is I'm trying to hunt. So the answer is both yes and no to that. So yes, in the sense of I have properties that I feel really good about that routinely produce bucks um, of a certain caliber. I say routinely produce, can produce bucks of a certain caliber that I'm interested in hunting. Um, but they don't always. Some years, some random Joe off the street happens to figure out my spot and all of a sudden he's living there and the buck that I think would or could live there is not there so i have to have backups right so i usually am trying to have three primary spots and then two new spots every year so um for example my new spots are being shuffled all the time and sometimes they like work their way into a primary spot so it's almost like you're holding a hand of cards right and you've got like or a good way a good analogy for it is you've got a starting lineup you got your basketball players on the court right so you have your three main guys who carry the weight of the team, and then you've got two guys who shuffle in and out for whatever reason. Um, that's kind of the same principle of what applies. And I know because I can, I, I have that set for me because I can reasonably only manage and hunt five properties well. And I say five properties, it, each of those properties may have one to four good stand sites, regardless of the fact that you know, they may be a thousand acres, 200 acres, 4,000 acres. Like I've whittled them down to where I'm like, if I'm going to hunt there, I'm going to hunt here. And that's the spot I'm going to be in. That's the spot I'm going to kill in, or I'm going to be able to make a determination of where I'm going to kill in by hunting in and around that spot. So because of that, like I'm hunting three properties routinely, and then I'm cycling two in based off usually trail cam data. Um, that I'm soaking trail cams over annual amounts of time. So my trail cams are soaking long windows of time. And then I'm looking at what bucks are living there and then what bucks are surviving and whether it's worth me going in there to chase them or not, or whether it's a next year property. All right, Jacob, <clears throat> I've got to ask you this. You're, you're talking about like different size properties. You may have one to maybe at the most, maybe four stand sites that you, you really want to hone in on. Uh, on a specific property, because I've been curious, and the way I, I'm kind of bringing this conversation up, I've been curious about how can guys, whether they're in a hunting club or they may have, you know, anywhere from a, you know, 500 acres to three or four thousand acres, that they're part of a big lease with a bunch of other people that they've been in for a long time. How how they can implement what you're talking about, you know, the guys that hunt public land, which you know we talked a lot about public land so far, um, or just how you implement this on public land, or the guy that has a private farm that you know he might have a you know 100 200 acres that he hunts, and maybe he's not really dabbling in the public land aspect, but all these different people that you know have a little bit different backgrounds, how they can implement what you're actually doing, okay. And kind of yep. going back to Andrew's, you know, question talking about like, you know, whether or not you hunt some of these same properties year over year in North Carolina, because that's your home state versus bounce around a whole bunch. And you just kind of answer that. What, it, when, how much time do you have to spend on a property in order to whittle it down? Like you're talking about to like just a, a couple of locations that like, if I'm going there, it's going to be X, Y, or maybe Z, or maybe it's just X. 
specifically on a property? How long does it typically take? And, and typically, what do you have to find an area that makes it repeatable in a very specific location? I think I would ask you in response to that is how fast can you walk X amount of acres? So it, as it applies to you, right? So like, for example, um, if I'm going to go hunt the national forest in Virginia, um, and, uh, like, let's say I'm going to go hunt the land like Nathan Killen or Dave Miller, or those guys hunt in Virginia or West Virginia, or, you know, any of that stuff, um, or the guys in Western North Carolina, um, Dude, that stuff can take a minute to hike. You may be spending three or four days just because it's physically exhausting to to try to cover that much ground. Like, you know, and you can only cover so much. Now, the nice thing is about that topography is a lot of that like whittled down is already done for you. Like you've already narrowed your scope a lot versus like flat ground can get kind of tough because you might have a thousand acre bottomland piece that's all fairly monotonous. And you have to walk every inch of it to cover it versus you may be able to go and hit just the northeast side of a slope and identify whether a good buck is there or not, depending on how your wind is working and what he's doing and the surrounding stuff, you know, so you can kind of, so there's, there's good and bad to both. But the question in response to that is like, well, it depends on how fast you want to walk it and the size property you want to do. Is it a thousand acre cutover? That could take a lot longer than, you know, a 200 acre block of hardwoods you know i could walk a thousand acres of hardwoods pretty quick uh, a cutover could be a monstrosity depending on how gnarly it is um, and how in-depth you want to go with it so what i would say is to to my my process stays the same whether i'm on, i'm on public or on private right so if you're a guy that's on a lease uh, and i am on a lease there's a lease in north carolina i'm on a two thousand acre a little over two thousand acre lease in north carolina i hunt every so often if a good one shows up there that I'm interested in. Um, the first thing that you're doing is you're looking for people. So where does everybody go? Like, I know you guys have talked about this on the podcast before, but we're all familiar with what pinout boards are, right? <laughs> everybody likes a good pinout board. Um, I love being able to look at the pinout board uh, just because there's like this ambiance to the pinout board that just feels like deer hunting. But at the same time, that's like your best kept tool in identifying where you need to go because a big buck is always going to be where people aren't. So that's the first thing. So you're looking at your, look at your pinout board, look at where everybody's hunting. If you don't have that, um, let's say you're in a lease and you don't really know, like there is no pinout board. Um, there's not really a pinout board in my lease. Um, it's just, there's like a dozen guys and they all just kind of hunt. They're supposed to sign in and out, but we all know how that works. Um, so, so the, anyways, the principle behind it is like, use your, use Onyx and mark where stands are and where guys are hunting the same way you would mark parking lots. So when I hunt public land, I will go and mark parking lots and all the parking access points on, on my, on my map, just to know like where people can access from. And then assume that every 500 yards from that access point, the pressure is going to drop off by almost 100%. Like, like it's going to be very minimal. I'll run into somebody maybe like myself every now and then, you know, um, or every every access spot that's like not fun to access through. Basically, that's going to rid you of most of your like just weekend warriors or guys who, you know, they're just not 
they're just out they're going to shoot a meat dough or they're going to shoot the best buck that they can get and there's a lot of respect and honor in that um but those are also the guys you got to weed through if you really want to kill a mature whitetail that's just the the heart like the cold hard truth so you're mapping the you're mapping the places people are first and then when you've identified like let's say you have going back to our 80 20 rule right like let's say you've identified 20 acres of this 100 acre property say it's a 100 acre lease um 20 acres of it are pretty not hunted that hard well within that 20 acres what is what what habitat types in that 20 acres are going to best apply to a big buck to survive is there habitat diversity is there thicket is there a cutover are there smz's running through it is there something that justifies a buck to be there um and then you know start working with that check that first so now you can walk that pretty quickly and identify okay there's one here if there's not one there for whatever reason you know maybe the habitat isn't good enough then you can start looking and backtracking like the hot like the least pressured areas based on whatever your property allows and going just in reverse because obviously the most pressured spot is going to be the least likely for your buck to live in it's not that there couldn't be one living there but it's like you know, we're playing a game of odds again here. So you want to backtrack that pressure. Um, and then you want to kind of work your way off from, you know, through that. That's, that's usually how I would, you know, and, and once again, once you have done that, all of the same things we're talking about apply the same strategy approach, the same looking through the, the landscape, um, you know, looking for signs specifically, uh, and then whittling down that landscape to like, the smallest core area that he can survive in and assuming, you know, he's going to live in a, in, in a pretty tight little pocket. Like uh, the gentleman that you guys have from the Mississippi state deer lab studies uh, that you guys talk about. Um, I mean, how granted there are times where those core areas get big, but you guys have seen pretty small core areas as well. Correct. Uh, if not fairly regularly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, so that's the same, it's the same principle, right? And it's, it's not that a buck might not have a big core area. He may roam every now and then, or he may, he may just be a roamer buck. Like you, they have a personality like that. But like, um, I use the analogy all the time that like when I'm hunting both private and public, my principle stays the same and it relates a lot to turkey hunting (laughs) and, and the, the, in the singular purpose that like when I turkey hunt, I tell everybody turkey hunting is what I do before I have my coffee in the morning. I've said that my whole life. And what I mean by that is I want to play the game with the bird that wants to play the game. I don't want, like, I'm not a guy that's going to shoot a noon Turkey. It's not me. Just like, I'm not the guy that's going to shoot a, like a random, like I'm not interested. It's not saying that I can't and I won't harvest a random Romer buck, but I'm not looking for that buck. I'm not just going to go sit around and wait for him to show up. You know, I'm going to like play the game with the buck that wants to play the game with me. Meaning like he's laying down sign, he's making rubs, he's consistent. He's putting tracks down in places that I can make work. You know, um, he's like, he's in an area that I can manipulate. You know, that's the buck that I want to chase. I'm sure there's others out there and probably a lot of others that are plenty big and bigger, you know, even than that, there'll probably be bucks that you know, I'll probably kill bucks that'll, you know, on properties and there'll be tons of bigger bucks out there, but you know, I'm trying to kill a three and a half year old buck or better 
Um, hopefully, you know, Pope and Young are better. Those are my two criterias if I can make it happen. Um, and uh, by doing that, anything above that, I'm stoked about. Um, but I'm looking for the deer that wants to play the game. Sometimes it's a deer that's like 160 inches. Sometimes it's 140 inch deer. Sometimes it's 120 inch deer. Sometimes it's a hundred inch deer, whatever it is. That's what I want to hunt. You know, I don't want to go hunt something that doesn't want to be hunted. <laughs> if that makes sense. <laughs> so. Lane, let me, or let me ask you this, Jacob, on, um, the idea of there's a couple questions here I have, but the first one I ask is you were talking about how much more difficult it would be for you to walk, say a thousand acre clear cut versus a thousand acres of hardwoods. Uh, kind of two scenarios here, um, you know, in a big wood setting, say hardwoods or big ponds, where maybe you don't have a, just a ton of clear cut activity, um, a little bit more open ground. When you're trying to map out your, your path, I mean, are you actually mapping out on Onyx kind of points that you want to get to? Are you just wandering through transition edges? How do you go about mapping out what you're looking for in a more open setting versus like those, that clear cut kind of country or just a abundance of thick cover? How do you go about, or I mean, are you just walking the edge of that thick cover? Are you punching to that thick cover? How do you go about doing the two different habitat types and, and your traffic or your path of travel when you're actually scouting to an area? It, I think it depends on, it depends on the size and scale of the, of the cover. Right. So like, so, um, I'm going to try to, uh, I know my answers are long-winded, so I'm sorry. Um, but, uh, the, we'll take, we'll, we'll start with like open, open ground first. So if I'm going to go into, let's say a conventional East coast or Southeastern river bottom piece, um, same thing applies to stuff in Arkansas and Mississippi, uh, just like it does in river bottoms in Illinois. It's all, it's all same stuff. It's all big flat ground, um, minimal cover big bottom land that floods usually waterfowl impoundment type stuff so um that being said what i'm gonna try to do is i'm gonna walk as many like inches of that property as i can and every single piece of sign that i find i'm gonna drop something on 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 x now i'm gonna come back to that the what i'm doing there is i'm looking i'm trying to create a holistic view of what is going on on that property because I can't remember everything the entire time. Like I can identify what good sign is, but you see so much of it on a specific property. It's good to have that map to be able to look down at and go, Oh, there's this definitive, like I saw a ton of rubs and sign here and then it was nothing for 500 yards. And then I saw a ton here and then it was sporadic here and it can help you paint the picture of the landscape as a whole. So once you've done that, you can drill down in those areas where you've identified all that sign. And I would actually go back through and remove my pins. And then I would go in and drop new pins, or I would color coordinate my pins based on like things that I want to emphasize. Right. So like, let's say I go into a property and it's open bottom land and I mark a hundred rubs on that property as I walk. Well, those are old, new, like anything really in the last year or two, I'm going to mark. Um, anything prior to that, it's just kind of like nice to acknowledge and be like, okay, there's historical sign here. Um, as that, that progresses, you know, I'm going to take that old and new sign and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to drill into it and go, okay, what is really fresh? Like within this pattern that I've identified and then is what I'm seeing that's fresh justifiable for me to hunt, you know, and I'm going to narrow that scope down until the point to where I'm like, 
okay, I identified three spots on this open bottom land that have patternable sign that deer are using this the way that I think that they should be. They're putting the sign down that I'm looking for, meaning a high density of track traffic, specifically buck tracks, not necessarily just doe tracks. Um, there's high density of track traffic. There's a high density of sign that shows that there's bucks that are like territorial, like they want this place to be theirs. Um, and then I'm going to work from there to backtrack to where they're coming from. Um, when it comes to clear cuts and thickets, pine thickets, clear cuts, anything that's thick, it varies based on the size of it. So if it's a two acre thicket, I might just go bulldoze through it and walk through it and try to figure out where exactly he's at. Like, is he in there? Is he on a certain corner? Like, you know, especially if you do it in the afternoon, because if you're going to, if you're going to bust one out, it's better to do it. In, in my opinion, between like noon and three or one and five, you do it in the afternoon when they're going to get up anyways and you blow them out. And then he just has all night to reset and he can come back in the morning, you know, versus you go and try to bulldoze in there in the morning and you bulldog in in the dark and he's trying to come back at the same time you are. And then you blow him out of there. And now he's completely off his routine. Now he's got to go to a different bed than he was thinking. He's got to, he's got a, he has to figure out a whole new plan. Like he had a very specific agenda in his mind for what he was going to do. So I'm going to go into that property if it's small and I'm going to try to bust him out. Uh, and I'm going to go look at that and get every piece of intel that I can out of that block while I can. If it's big, like either big in the sense of too difficult to access or just big in size, then I'm going to go ahead and just walk the perimeter. And I'm going to try to like do the same thing with my pins as that, you know, where I'm like, okay, as, as open country, where I'm going to try to create a pattern of density of buck traffic specifically, there's going to be a lot of does in obvious spots all over the place. So once again, I'm not worried about doe traffic unless it's the rut and I have to sit doe traffic. Um, but I'm looking specifically for densities of buck sign and then trying to pattern that and then look for a pattern within that pattern, right? So it's like the spot within the spot, but for patterning deer. All right, guys, we're cutting it off right there. We're going to make this a, a two-parter just because we feel like there's a lot of good information in here, and it's probably a best consumed in a two-part kind of style. What do you think, Jacob? Oh, I absolutely agree. So this next, the part two is going to come out tomorrow, so don't miss it. This is going to be a fantastic episode. There's so much good information here, guys. I think we're going to have an absolute ton of listener success stories come from this episode with Jacob. So make sure you tune in tomorrow for part two. Appreciate y'all watching this podcast on, on YouTube. Also appreciate y'all listening. And listen, don't miss part two's episode, guys. Yep, so we'll catch absolutely. you. We'll catch you back here for part two. And remember, y'all, stay southern. All right, guys, we're starting to get kind of close to summer here. And you know what my favorite part about summer is? The Mobile Hunters Expo. Y'all heard us talk about it a lot last year, and we actually got to meet a lot of you guys at that expo. Well, we're excited to announce we're going to be there again. This time it's going to be in Dalton, Georgia, June 28th through June 30th. We are going to be there all three days. We're going to have a bunch of past podcast guests there. We're going to have a booth where you can come by and grab some merchandise. And I'm sure we're going to be recording all kinds of podcasts there. If you're unfamiliar, the Mobile Hunters Expo is the place you 
need to be if you are the kind of hunter that listens to this podcast. This show was literally made for you. It is an excellent group of people that are going to be there. A lot of whitetail killers from around the southeast are going to be there. You're going to get to talk to them, shake their hand, learn from them in person, make some connections. And guys, we get a lot of questions about uh, which saddle should I get? Which tree stand should I get? What about this piece of gear? What about that piece of gear? How do I meet other hunters who want to hunt the same way that I do? You know, finding a good hunting buddy. The Mobile Hunters Expo is a place for all of that. So you guys don't miss it. June 28th through the 30th, Dalton, Georgia. We'll see you there.